Welcome to Living Well Into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Our goal is to spark your discussions among and between generations to inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. If you missed the first three episodes of the series on housing or any of our four-part series on food or just want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBR-FM, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any place you stream your podcasts. You could even ask your smart device to play Living Well Into the Future podcasts. In this episode of Living Well Into the Future, we're going to look at housing options with a focus on one type of community. It's an intentional community one called co-housing. First, we'll get some perspective on housing options from Leela Powell, Executive Director of LISC San Antonio. Leela Powell has an undergraduate degree from Stanford and a master's from University of Texas School of Architecture in Community and Urban Planning. Leela is a planner's planner. She was policy advisor to two mayors of San Antonio who were themselves planners. We haven't used our housing resources very efficiently in this country for the past hundred years or so. We've spread out, we've sprawled, we've gone from houses where the average individual in a household in America had about 400 square feet to where each person in a new home now and a new household has more than a thousand square feet. And so families have been getting much smaller, but houses have been getting much bigger. So we're not building and creating product that matches the needs of of most Americans. And I think that recognizing that, retooling what we have to offer, Americans have a lot of ingenuity. (laughs) And we've got great raw materials to work with. And I do think there are a lot of solutions that once we can overcome some of these barriers, and, and there is a little bit of the American dream has to be a single family house with a picket fence around it that one family lives in. But that's not necessarily who America is anymore. America's multi-generational. And it's sometimes maybe, yes, out of necessity, but also out of the joy, the stories we're publishing an ADU guide. One of the families in it said, look, we built this unit in the back. My mother lives there. She sees her grandkids every day. And I see her and I know she's fine. I can't imagine my life any other way. But we go back to our own houses when we need our own space. Why in the world did we fall for this model that doesn't allow us to do that? Why did we embrace these patterns that said you have to live in your own space and you can't share that space with anyone else and you have to own it outright? You can't own it through a co-op. You can't. So we're at a place, I think, where we're blowing up all those myths. And we're figuring out that people need housing that meets their needs, not a standard off the rack model that meets everyone's needs when we're all so different. So I am optimistic. I think this is a good time 
to be exploring new models and providing new opportunities for a huge range of Americans and not just 2.3 kids and a golden retriever and a, a married couple and wife who stays at home kind of family. Thank you, Leela. We'll hear more from Leela in our subsequent programs on affordable housing and homelessness. Now that Leela has set the stage for exploring different models for housing, we'll speak with Barney Stein a real estate broker in the Southern Berkshires in Massachusetts, who beginning in 2019 worked with others to establish a co-housing community, but found a roadblock in cost. You'll meet Colin Murphy, a builder developer in the Northern Berkshires, whose steps towards building a co-housing community were interrupted by the pandemic and Mary Krause, an architect who lives in the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts, who designs and facilitates the formation of co-housing communities throughout North America. She, with her husband, and later her now teenage daughter, has lived in a vibrant and successful co-housing community for 27 years. Mary, can you tell me what some of the elements of living in co-housing that are so important. Yeah, one of them is the community dinners, brunches, meals. We have a couple. So in my community, we have for forever, for pretty much the whole time we've been here, every Monday and Wednesday is a dinner night. And those of us who are on cook teams take turns cooking. So every second Wednesday, I head up a cook team of two other people. But every other Monday and Wednesday, I might be going about my day, working, busy, and then I think, oh, it's Monday. I get to go down to the common house at six o'clock, eat something someone else cooked for me, sit around a table with a bunch of my friends and talk, and then someone else cleans it up for me. Exactly. Same thing on Wednesday. And then once a month, when I get to, this is one of the jobs that I've chosen in the community, and I, I love it, I get to stand around the central island as I talked about with my neighbors and I might be chopping onions and another friend of mine is mixing up the quiche and we're talking to each other. It usually takes us about three hours to to make dinner for maybe 40 people or so and we get to catch up and have a good time and of course it's really fun to make food for people and have them enjoy it. So that's a really nice aspect of community but one of the things that surprised me because, of course, we were planning this community for some time. And so I would talk to family and friends about the community. And so when we moved in, people would ask me, is it living up to your expectations? And one thing that surprised me that exceeded my expectations was the strength of those connections that you get when you exchange little favors with your neighbors. So I might lend you a cup of flour and you might pick up something at the store for me or I might watch your kid for an hour these little exchanges and how powerful they are and when I first moved in somebody would ask me for a favor and I'd be like oh yeah let me lend you this or let me do this for you and they'd be like you sure I'm not putting you out I'd be like no I really want to do it and but then I found that when I was asking someone for a favor, I would have that same reaction. Wait, are you sure I'm not putting you out? I don't want to ask this of you. And they'd be like, no, I really want to help you out. 
And I realized I want to help them. They obviously mean it too. And there's this strength of connection that you get from being able to help each other and from receiving help from each other, which is a very human thing. You've mentioned the benefit to the children. Yes. So the children have all these other adults around, not just their parents. And so they have all these honorary, you know, grandparents and uh, aunts, uncles, and so on. And it's great for them. And they're also mentors. I, I remember this one kid who he was really into sort of technical things and building things. He wanted to make a raft. His parents were brilliant in their fields, but they were not at all oriented towards building things or technical things. So he came to those of us who knew and we helped him build his raft and then he floated it on the local pond here. And so kids have access to other grownups and it's great for the grownups too, because they get to connect with, with the kids and have these relationships. As I said, honorary grandchildren, honorary, I have some kids I call my rent-a-kids um, <laughs> who are friends of my daughters who are just totally at home in our house. And so it's really nice all around. I remember when I first moved in here and I didn't you know, have a kid yet and there were a bunch of five-year-olds came over to my house and I made muffins with them and it was really fun for me. And then after two hours, they left and I wasn't responsible for them anymore. And one of the parents was just thanking me. She must have had a moment to herself to actually get something done in the house. But it was great for me. It was mutual. It was great for the kids. That's really nice. Just adult friendships, having friends right next door who you can go for a walk with or just go out to work in the garden. I mean, working in the garden, for those of us who like to garden, is a lot of fun. And there's people to garden with if you like, or people who walk by while you're gardening and strike up a conversation. But also people are very grateful to those of us who are growing food in the community garden. And anybody can harvest food from the community garden. And it's also the the produce is also used for community meals. We actually have someone in our community who will harvest and set things out on the common house porch. We even have a little refrigerator now. So you come home and you can grab something to make for dinner, but people are so grateful. And I feel, wait a minute, I love working in the garden. <laughs> you know, so if you can plug into a job that you enjoy doing, but then you also have the fulfillment of doing it for other people and other people have the fulfillment of having it done for them. I have neighbors who mow lawns here. I have zero interest in doing that. And I am so grateful that they do that. So that's what community is all about. In 2019, Barney Stein became involved with a group of people who wanted to form an intentional community in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Barney studied in McGill University and at Rhode Island School of Design in Architecture. Barney has been with Lance Vermillion Real Estate in the Berkshires for almost a decade. The intentional community that you're a member of, it seems to be a new idea. And yet, what happened to the communes of the 60s? Is it some way going back? And how is it different from that? Wow, that's a good question. I'd love to, in my spare time, do a history of 
communities way back into the 1800s with the Shakers and those utopian communities. And then the 60s, co-housing, which within this rubric of intentional community was invented. There's no new idea on the planet, but in Denmark, I think in the 60s or 70s, and this idea to cluster housing together to recreate a village sensibility to bring it to our community here in the Berkshires started a few meetings at the library here in Great Barrington. Someone put up a flyer. Are you interested in intentional community? And we've been meeting out since January, 2019. And the idea was that there's gotta be an alternative to the mainstream me first focused way of living and that there's got to be a more healthy and joyful and conscious way to live than the mainstream is doing. And so it came out of that and we delved into a few possibilities. So I guess I should say there's a subgroup of people in the community that really wanted to focus on building a physical residential community. You know, okay. How you- many people are you working with now? The property circle within the community was only six or eight or 10 people. And then there's another couple dozen satellite around that come to more general group events. We have salons every once in a while to talk about a topic of interest. And it's all had to be on Zoom because of the pandemic, as with many things, a weird couple of years. But the actual property group, we tried the scenario of buying land and building small, like thousand square foot to use a general term modular, but this kind of architect design, ecologically sensitive modular, not the plastic box with bad proportions that I normally think of as the modular. And the bottom line is that it costs too much. We're in our 50s, 60s, and 70s. We're all working professionals. We had a budget of 350, maybe $400,000. And the bottom line in both our experiments was that we needed at least half a million dollars each to make anything happen, either to buy land and build, or there was also a whole investigation of taking an old inn, an existing structure, Actually, there were two of those scenarios of taking an existing historic structure and retrofitting it to our needs. And I actually thought it was ironic. The budget, same thing again. In addition to the scenario of buying land and building a small, efficient homes for ourselves and a community building and all the wonderful things that co-housing does, which is to share resources, to share land, to share gardening, to be a real community, like maybe some nostalgic idea of a country village once was centuries ago, actually interdependent on one another and helping with childcare and helping with elder care. And that's the vision. But we also investigated taking an existing structure and fitting it into living dwelling units. It's not that different from a a condo. In co-housing, each person has their own private living space, but within this communal setup. So in both cases, the budget ended up being at least half a million dollars each. In one case for this small new home, in another case for a little portion of a large inn. And so it just has been discouraging and disappointing. And at this point, we've actually 
pretty much decided to give up trying to build of a residential community. We can't afford to do it. We're just going to stop banging our heads against the wall. Either we need our budget to go up or we need to not do it, or we need to find some wacky, wonderful, creative way that no one's thought of yet, <laughs> like a benefactor handing us $5 million or something like that. You went pretty far down the process. You hired experts. In a way, maybe we did things a little backwards. It was just an, a natural learning that we went through over months. But when we finally hired the co-housing expert who did the budget, that's when we first had the sticker shock of, oh my goodness, if you take the traditional route that dozens of co-housing communities that this woman, Katie McCammond is her name, has helped bring into being, the first budget we looked at was six or $700,000. But that was for, I think we were talking about 15 or 20 families. If you make it 30 or 40 families, the numbers get better. But does the land support 30 or 40 families? And there's all these questions. In fact, part of our situation too was the land that we had settled upon only was legally zoned for six dwellings. If we had decided we could go forward, it was going to be spending months probably trying to convince the town to let us do what we wanted to do. That was a whole other phase that we didn't get to. Is And as the experts were saying, this happens in almost every community. You had to spend months trying to convince the town. That's part of the process is because of the zoning problems. We're in a transition now because we're trying to figure out what we are if we're not building a residential community. And one of the ideas that's floated in the meetings is maybe we figure out how to become advocates for future groups that are maybe younger and maybe have more than half a million bucks each by doing advocacy work with the towns and saying, okay, folks, you haven't redone your zoning bylaws since the 60s. And this is a solution to the world's problems to have clustered housing, not just for the affordable aspects of it, relatively affordable, because you're building a lot of housing together at the same time on a site, but also that's the visionary in us that it's a better way to live, not just an affordable way, but a better way to live in community with sharing resources and food and all that good stuff. So I don't know how, but hopefully there's a way to talk to the towns and get them to start making cracks in the, the, the hardness and to figure out a way towards encouraging people to build communities in their town instead of just having this ancient zoning laws that only allow one home on a lot of acres. One benefit, isn't it, that the dwelling units actually can be smaller because there are common areas. So tell me what the common areas you were thinking about. At the baseline, you share meals together. So kitchen, hangout space, and then outdoor spaces, food growing. Ideally, there's some gardeners or a farmer in the group. Or we talked about, because we're a little older, leasing some land to a farmer if the land 
lent itself to farming. That was a, a fantasy, a vision that we have. But then there's nitty gritty stuff. Does everybody need a washer dryer in their unit or does every few houses share a washer dryer? Does everybody need a lawnmower and a wheelbarrow and rakes and shovels or do you share those things? And then the fun stuff, live a space to make art, a space to make music. There are a couple of therapists in the group, a community space that could support doing workshops. And we didn't want to be separate from the community. People would be welcome to events at the community and workshops and whatnot. So that's the vision. There are, I think it's something like 280 co-housing communities in the United States at this time. And there's hundreds more at some place in their development. And the ones that exist all have waiting lists of people who would like to live there. So that's the other thing that has always struck me is if you build it, they will come. That saying really applies here. If we could have figured out how to just get it built, there's no question that all the residential units would have been sold. There, there's lots of people who want to live this way and just the supply just doesn't exist. And the economics don't work. So. Right. The economics don't work for people, for workforce level housing. It's more for people who have more money. But that's true across whether we're talking intentional community or the whole housing landscape is now at this moment for people who have a good bit of money. Now that we've heard from Marty about the thoughts and actions necessary to establish a co-housing site, let's talk to Colin Murphy, who says he's been a builder since 1974, the year he was seven. I met Colin at the 47-acre site adjacent to his home, where he is planning to develop a co-housing community, drawing people from all over the country. His project removes the barrier of the cost of land but Colin was gearing up just when the pandemic hit, and so the project isn't as far along as he hoped. We spoke outside in the interest of protecting his 10- and 13-year-old children from possible germs. That accounts for the sound quality and the occasional melody of birds. What steps have you taken so far to get the co-housing community going? How many families do you need? We oversee the website. We have maybe 300 on the website on the mailing list right now. We encourage everyone to sign up on that mailing list. Meetings, major announcements come from there for the community. We are on cohousing.org and ic.org, the intentional community website. And that's pretty much where I get most of the feedback from people that have lived in nationwide or learned about the community living and care about the planet. You have 300 people on your mailing list. How many are ready to go and interested in moving forward? We have maybe a handful that are seriously ready to go. What do you see for the future of this community? I've provided the land. I've done about a year and a half my time investment in site engineering. We have a little bit of engineering due that we didn't get done before winter. So that needs to be finished. Why are there more? It's cost. Communities. Land acquisition is a big hurdle. 
a group of 15 to 35 strangers to shell out a down payment for his property. Thank you, Colin. We'll await news of future developments. So far, we've heard about two thwarted or at least postponed attempts to form a co-housing community. Now we're going back to Mary Krause, an architect who designs and facilitates the envisioning of the components of co-housing communities around North America. As I mentioned, she herself has lived in a successful co-housing community for 27 years. How did you first get involved in co-housing? So I got into architecture in the first place for environmental reasons. And uh, I thought I would design a 100% solar house and I would have achieved my goal. And as I was in architecture school, the more I thought about what I wanted to do for my thesis, the more I thought about if I just design a 100% solar house, there's so much else to life. People are still going to be driving to the supermarket to buy food that was grown across the country or across the world. There's a lot more that you can address on the level of a community than you can on the level of a single family home. So I got interested in community from an ecological perspective and the word sustainable community was just being coined. My interest originally was environmental and clustering homes to save on the environment, having uh, everything from energy usage to materials and agriculture and all, all kinds of different factors that went into a community transportation very much. And what year so was this? That was 1987. What school was it? University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And the school at that time was supportive of what you were interested in? My advisor and, you know, other professors were supportive. But I have to say, when I presented my thesis, I remember somebody saying, wow, that was really interesting or different. There were a couple of other people doing I wasn't the only person who had similar kind of leanings around that. And, and certainly in terms of energy efficiency, that's why I went to that school. There was some work going on in that realm. But sustainable community was a new and strange thing. And then as I graduated, started working with architecture firms, I began working with a co-housing community locally here in, in Western Massachusetts. And again, my initial interest had been in the ecological aspect, but the more I began working with co-housing and ultimately living and becoming part of the group as a future resident as well, the more I became interested in the social sustainability and the relationships between people and the wonderful power of that. Let's talk more about that a little later. So when you started working with people who wanted to form a co-housing community, did a group come to you? Did individuals come to you? What, what, what was the, the level of interest, that, the spark that needed to get a co-housing going? Typically, it's a group of people who've pulled themselves together. For example, in my home community, the first community that I worked with, there was a couple that put out an ad saying something like, couple seeks others to buy land and build community and started from there. And they set up meetings. More and more people came. And that's a typical process. You might get a person or a group of people, maybe a couple friends who initiate and have an initial vision. And then people come in and start adding to that vision and those ideas. And at some point, there are enough people where you become more formal and you start create entities and have people put money in and 
have enough money to optional land and hire the various professionals that you need to hire to move forward. So that answers my next question, which is what comes first, the group or the land? And people don't generally come to you with the land first. Sometimes, and then come to me, I'm in the architectural field. So there's other professionals that uh, a group would come to first, like a development consultant. Although I have to say, sometimes groups try to come to me first, and that's been a refrain of mine. You need a development consultant. Okay. You know, you need- What's a development consultant? They, they essentially oversee the whole project. So they look at all of the aspects that have to happen over time and where the money flows and helping the group figure out how many households you're going to need, what kind of site you're looking for, when do you need to line up, which kind of lawyers, all of the whole... A development project is really complex. There's a lot going on. Yeah, there's legal, there's architectural, there's there's just, there's a lot, there's construction, there's a lot involved. Most people obviously don't know how to oversee a development project. So someone like that can help, help a group manage the whole project. So typically that would come before the architect, but even with a development consultant or other similar entity, a group will sometimes come to me before they have a site or when they're contemplating a site. So there is architectural work that can be done in terms of programming, which is defining your goals and requirements. And so what you want in your common house, how many, what kind of homes you want and so on. So there's work to be done there that I can help a group with. Also frequently a group will have an option on a site and they have to do a preliminary design in order to get some of their permitting and Hopefully they can move forward on that site, but sometimes they then have to try another site. So there are various points at which I might come into the equation. You work with communities all over the United States and into Canada as well? Right, yeah. Do you need large pieces of land to do that? Can you do it in an urban environment? Where can these communities be formed? In practical terms, in terms of design, pretty much anywhere. Zoning regulations is another question. But so, yeah, you can have a large site in a rural environment, or you can have a quarter, three-quarter acre site in an urban environment and have a co-housing community. I think there's one in um, Emeryville, California, that's about a dozen homes on, I, I think it's a quarter of an acre and there's maybe 12 or 14 units on it. So it, it's really, and I worked with a community in the Boston area that had 30 units on three quarters of an acre and still has a really nice central courtyard between the three or four stories of homes. And how long has that community been going? Let's see, about 20 years, I think, something like that. And so it, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. On three quarters of an acre for how many families? 30, 30 households. Do they have a common area, a common kitchen, the kind of amenities that you have in your more rural landscape? Yeah, they do. They have, you know, the same basic amenities. Obviously on a large rural site, you can have a large workshop and an orchard and a big garden. And, but even the some of the urban um, communities on the smaller sites still have a garden. It might be a smaller garden, but they still have a garden. This community that I'm mentioning, they have a common house with a gathering area for dinner. They have a nice kitchen. All the usual amenities that you have in, in co-housing, which, are, which also, by the way, include kids' rooms, guest rooms. And they're, 
a number of basic amenities that most co-housing communities have. Now I understand that you have all the economic issues that you need to settle before you can start designing. You use the participatory design process in the initial stages when they're ready for you to begin designing it. Does everybody in the group have a, a say in what the community is going to be? During the participatory design, there's there are a certain number of future households of people who are involved. Depending on the group, they might also let interested people be involved to some extent, although not block decisions, for instance. Different groups either let or don't let prospective members participate or let them participate in different ways. And so it's the people who are making various design decisions are intending to be future residents, but a development project unfolds over a number of years. And so often people will drop out and new people will come in. But you have a group of people who are making decisions together and learning to work together and forming a culture together. And that's also a really important part of the participatory work. So it's the architecture, but it's also the relationships. And by working together, they are working on those relationships, forming those bonds. And even if some people drop out, They've created a healthy community and then other people come in and the community keeps evolving. And I like to say that I'm doing my job well if I'm helping the group to create their social community at the same time as we're designing their physical community. Now, you've lived in your community for 27 years. You started doing it that long ago. Has your process changed over time in terms of the participatory design process? Yes, definitely. Fairly early on, after some number of years working with communities, I felt like I was dragging people through the same process of discovery, of rediscovering the wheel. For instance, in the common house, we need to have a great room where we gather for dinners and we need to have a kitchen and the kitchen should be close to the great room. And, you know, there's, okay, I already know this. Like, why don't I tell them that? And why don't I tell them that I think it's a really good idea if you have a central island in the kitchen because you're going to be, say, three of you preparing dinner together and you want to be able to socialize. That's what this is about. It's about community. So I now send groups a, a pre-written suggestion of a design program, which is a description of, of what they want, would potentially want in their community with questions within it. So I'm already educating them about what I think is a good idea for their community. They can completely throw it out if they want, but that's their starting point. So that's changed. It's more formalized. And by sending a survey ahead of time, also I can tease out ahead of time where there might be disagreements and where there might be commonality. So I don't waste 20 minutes discussing that we want two guest rooms in the common house when clearly everybody wanted that. But if, for instance, some people think I really want to have some home offices in the community and someone else says, I think that's a terrible idea. So you've got this polarized sense of on the spectrum of what people want. There are vast differences. Then you spend time focusing on that and helping people to listen to each other around those issues where they have disagreement. That's certainly 
something. And, and I think there's obviously a number of ways I probably can't even think of that my facilitation skills or choices have changed over time just by virtue of working with communities, living in community, learning about facilitation and interpersonal dynamics. And you just keep learning about that over the years as you live in community and work with communities. I understand that sociocracy is a method of governance that co-housing communities have developed. Is that what your group uses and what is it? We do use sociocracy. It's, I think of it as a more organized and sophisticated way to work by consensus. So in other words, not everybody has to make every decision. You have different circles that have different purviews. So it's a very efficient way of involving people in decisions. I think you would say just, you know, of democratically involving people in decisions without overwhelming people with endless meetings. I still think of it as consensus. Everybody can live with the decisions that are made, but it's more efficient, it's more organized, it's more transparent. And I think it's a good system. And every every community is different. Generally, co-housing communities operate by some form of consensus and sociocracy is definitely becoming more popular. It's a system that works very well. We've spoken about some of the design considerations and the early development considerations. And now we're going to talk about the community building aspect of co-housing in some greater detail. You work with a landscape architect in planning the community. Could you tell me what the considerations for this community or for a co-housing community are that may not be considered in just a condominium development or a townhouse development. A permaculture landscape designer who I've worked with on co-housing coined this phrase, which is that you're creating random connections by design. So in other words, you're designing the site layout, and it's true on the building level as well, but you're designing the site layout so that people run into each other fortuitously and have a conversation. So for instance, if it's a community where you have a pedestrian way with porches on either side, you want those porches to be close enough to where your neighbor is walking by. So if you're sitting on your front porch, they can see your expression and notice that you actually wanna be engaged with and say hi and strike up a conversation. If your house is 40 feet away from the pedestrian way, that you can't have that interaction. Also, by your common house, you generally want to have some kind of gathering area outside the common house. So as you walk in, there's a place where kids might be playing or people might be sitting there having tea together or just chatting. So as you go in, say, to get your mail in the common house, you walk by other people, and then that spontaneously creates an opportunity to to interact and catch up with your neighbor. How are the design elements different for a co-housing project than for a condominium or townhouse or other kind of multifamily house? You are really trying to create that sense of community and connected sense of neighborhood. And it's not like you can't do that in a condominium project. As a matter of fact, it 
could be something that people would enjoy, even if they're not wanting co-housing, they might enjoy opportunities to socialize with their neighbors. But that is, yes, you're intentionally creating that sense of neighborhood that people used to have in some neighborhoods where you walk by and your neighbor's standing behind the fence, tending their garden or whatever, and you, they're, they're in their lawn and it's a walkable neighborhood. And you walk by and you see your neighbor and you say hi. And so it's not as if these things haven't existed. Yeah, a community. Exactly. And it's oriented around people, around pedestrians. That is one thing about co-housing is the homes, even in a non-urban environment, in a rural or suburban environment, the cars are relegated towards the outside so that you have a pedestrian environment in the center where you can walk around without the impingement of cars. And of course, cars take up a lot of space too. So it's, it's a human scale. The cars are there on the outside. You can get to your home. It's not like that, but it's very human centered and connection centered and neighborhood centered. And that's what you're uh, designing for. There has been talk of the graying of co-housing communities. What have you seen and, and how does it affect what the community wants or needs in its environment. Senior co-housing is actually been one of the next waves of co-housing. So these are new communities that are created for senior co-housing. People who are getting close to their retirement years or who are in their retirement years and who are looking at what some of the options are and not liking them, not wanting to live alone, but not wanting to be in maybe something more controlled or, and so the idea of having a neighborhood where they have a lot of say and get to manage things and have close friends and do things together. It's very appealing. And so a number of groups are creating senior co-housing. There's also the fact that some existing communities, as you mentioned the word graying, and some of the existing communities may have started with more age variety and more young families or young people and people's people age. And as various people sell out, one thing that's happening now is that housing in this country has become so expensive. And so it's become very hard for younger people, younger families to afford housing. Then obviously what happens when homes open up, you're more likely to get older people who can afford to buy in and it's harder to get younger families to, to be available just at that right moment and able to buy a home in the co-housing community. So that is a, an issue that communities are facing and, and looking at ways to you know, get more young families in or young, young families, young, just young adults owning homes. Two questions there. One, how do you have to retrofit the communities for people who are aging? And two, what ways are there to try and encourage more diversity in age and maybe even income level? So in terms of design for aging in place, that is something that some communities have incorporated over time. It is something that communities are much more aware and interested to incorporate than they were, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And some of the aspects would be accessible or adaptable homes. One of the questions that I always ask groups in their programming is, do you want all of your homes to be visitable by people with mobility issues? So maybe all or most of the homes should be able to have somebody come visit you if they have mobility issues. 
but certainly having adaptable or accessible homes. The, the common houses are usually fairly accessible, but having more accessible facilities in the common kitchen. One big thing actually is acoustics. You always want to design your great room. So your great room is where people come together and have meals a couple times a week if, if they choose to. And you can imagine having 40 people in one room. If you don't design it, it could be really noisy. So it's always a consideration to have acoustical treatment on the ceiling and design your great room so that it works well acoustically for many conversations over dinner. It's even more important when you have an older population where there's a higher proportion of people with hearing issues. And you might even design a separate room within the great room or right next to the great room that you can close off to have maybe just one or two tables with a, a, a quieter conversation. Then the second part of the question, have you talked with various communities? Since you're doing the design, you probably don't get into the discussion of how do you attract more younger people who might not be able to afford what has become the cost of these units? You know, it's something we talk about a lot as a, the co-housing movement and professionals involved in co-housing. There have even been conferences at the at COHO US, the Co-Housing Association of the US, around affordability, where we talk about exactly those things. There are a number of solutions. There actually are some communities that have incorporated. For instance, I know of a community that incorporated one or more Section 8 apartments in their community. There are actually our community. Initially, we had 10 affordable units, but we came up with a resale formula that to make a long story short, the resale formula did not maintain them to be as affordable as we hoped. Even if they're more affordable than other units, it's still the price of housing is just skyrocketed. But rental is something that is a possibility for affordability. So having rental units within a community or allowing people to rent out their units, encouraging a design where let's say you might have a duplex where someone owns the duplex and rents half of it out, designing homes with rental suites. So maybe a separate you know, bedroom and sitting room and bathroom where somebody might be able to rent something fairly inexpensively, but have some autonomy. So feel like they have their own unit, someone owning a unit with an in-law apartment, and maybe they even live in the in-law apartment and rent out the large house to a family. There are elements like that. And, and do uh, codes, city codes per permit that, or does it have to be done on a location by location basis? Yeah, location by location basis. Yeah, your zoning and regulations are different everywhere, but I, there's not in terms of rental, I don't think it's so much the regulations that limit rentals. Again, like you said, it depends. And certainly in terms of in-law apartments, so those are allowable some places, not others. But in terms of someone owning a unit and renting that out, that can be a factor. As a matter of fact, in our community, because it's a university town and we were the first co-housing community in the East. And so there was concern about what if this fails, everybody's just going to be renting it out to students and it's going to be blasting music and who knows what things people are afraid of. So we actually did have some limitations around rentals because of that. So that does happen. But one of the factors about rentals is who owns them? You know, how do you structure that uh, and get people to buy 
units in order to rent them out. So it's a whole interesting conversation. And then there is subsidized housing. There are, I, I just don't know much about the what programs too might allow for more affordable housing. Habitat for Humanity, can you incorporate a habitat unit? I think some communities may have done that. Anyway, it's an ongoing topic of endeavor for sure. Back to design then. You started out about 30 years ago with sustainability in mind. Things have changed over time. What adaptations has the community made with respect to going from whatever sustainability was to net zero uh, housing? Right. Yeah. Also, when I was working with my first community, which was my community, we had goals of ecological sustainability, indoor health, and affordability. And we were balancing all those goals as we designed the site design, the home designs, common house design. And so for instance, we did think at the time, solar and certainly solar electric photovoltaic arrays were very expensive and their programs or not a lot of programs to subsidize them and so on. But we made sure to orient enough of our roofs to the south so that we could install them at a later date. And now we've got a ton of solar collectors on our various roofs in our community. So that was something where we planned ahead. And we did work on, we did specify materials and systems that, again, balance those goals that were healthy environmental. So instead of doing cheap carpet, which would end up in a landfill and cause indoor air quality issues, we used white pine floors that were milled locally, as, as just one many examples. We designed the homes energy efficiently for the time, and fairly tightly built, fairly well insulated. But nowadays, we just our techniques have improved, the materials have improved. We would probably use triple glazed windows instead of double glazed windows, just to give a simple example. And there are more. The industry has been coming up to speed. As I said, 30 years ago, people would ask, what, what does sustainability mean? What's sustainable community? And I think pretty much everybody finds that's a familiar word now. Communities have, I would say, pretty much had the environment and sustainability in their goals from the beginning. And how that gets carried out is different in each case. One thing that was very interesting to me about 20 years ago was working simultaneously with a community that had a 100, 150 acre site, something like that up in Vermont. And the community I mentioned that was three quarters of an acre in the Boston area. And so the Vermont site, they, they could orient all their homes to the south. They had all the flexibility of how they could lay things out because it was this gigantic you know, site. And so get their solar gain and so on and orientation for solar collectors. They could have a, an organic farm on their site, but they were in rural Vermont. So they're driving everywhere, right? And the Jamaica Plain group selected a brownfield site. So a, a polluted site that they could remedy, which was within walking distance of the T. So public transportation and all their homes were apartments stacked three, three, four stories high. So you save a lot of heat, heating by having things attached. 
So same goals, very different manifestations. Are there other retrofitting, people putting in elevators or putting ramps where there were stairs or whatever? Yeah, yeah there are those sorts of retrofits that do happen over time. And I would say, as, as we talked about, one of the evolutions of co-housing design is a lot more groups now design ahead of time so that homes are adaptable, whether it's designing for apartments that are all attached that have an elevator serving them commonly, designing bathrooms that are big enough to use a wheelchair. You might have furniture in there in the meantime, but it's easy to adapt quickly. For two-story units, we sometimes design a future elevator. So the groups are definitely more focused in that direction than in the past. You've talked about successful groups that you've dealt with. Is there a commonality in ones that don't get off the ground? It is hard to move a development process forward. Development projects take a lot of years and effort and complexity to move forward. So whether it's a development project that a group takes on or anybody, they're not always successful. So for some groups will have a hard time finding a site. Some groups might go through a number of different sites and anytime you lose a site, you lose membership and then you have to build membership again. And at some point it might fizzle out or there's groups that have persisted for years and years and then finally built. One of the essential things, the most essential thing is the interpersonal dynamics, how people get along, work with each other. And those are skills that groups really need to work on and have gotten smarter about over time for prioritizing those skills and those connections. Much rather grow vegetables. So it, that, you know, that works out. And there's people who enjoy plowing snow. Mary's enthusiasm made the co-housing community look so idyllic, I went to see it for myself. You can see pictures of the co-housing community at our website on berkshireolli.org under the tab for Living Well into the Future. Thank you to our guests, Leela Powell, Barney Stein, Colin Murphy, and Mary Krause. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie Biava, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBRFM 87.9 Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kopstein. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.